Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's address to the nation tonight, in which he's expected to warn about the threats to American democracy from the MAGA Republicans. Having recently described the Trump cult followers as not believing in the will of the people or democracy itself, venturing to use the term semi-fascist, we will discuss how much further Biden might go in his speech tonight and speak with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Then we will explore further whether fascism is in the political DNA of the country or that it has been brought into the political mainstream by Trump, who clearly admires authoritarians and would like to have the power of murderous dictators like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He is the author of a number of books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants in Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And we will discuss his article at NBC News, Why Mikhail Gorbachev is a Cautionary Tale for the United States. Then finally, with the city of Jackson, Mississippi, without drinking water and infrastructure breaking down across the country from underinvestment compounded by the ravages of extreme climate from global warming, we will speak with Mikhail Chester, a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment and director of the Metis Center for Infrastructure and Sustainable Engineering at Arizona State University. The author of The Rightful Place of Science, Infrastructure and the Anthropocene, he has an article at the Scientific American, The Slow Bake of Our Infrastructure. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, the politics of us and them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jason Stanley. Thank you, Ian. Good to be back on. Well, thanks for joining us. And as we go to air tonight, uh, President Biden makes his speech in Philadelphia in front of, uh, of course, the iconic building in which the Constitution was signed and is expected that he will expand further on his expressions about MAGA extremism and semi-fascism. My understanding is that the recent meeting in the White House with the historians may have prompted this uh, change in, you know, away from his collegial attitude since he spent so many decades in the Senate with 
with a different breed of Republicans than the MAGA Republicans. Apparently, he was shown the 1938 speech that FDR gave warning the American people about American fascism and, of course, fascism abroad in Italy and in um, Germany. And apparently uh, they also uh, told Biden about the plutocratic attempt to uh, a coup against FDR by this Wall Street group uh, that tried to hire General Smedley Butler. Biden apparently was not aware of these historical facts, but apparently they've had an effect. So I guess it's better late than never, right, that the F word is now being used. Better late than never. It's long past time to go back to uh, to that history. Sarah Churchwell's remarkable book, uh, Behold America on the Interwar Period between World War One and World War Two uh, on American fascism during the interwar period is really great on this, where she talks about the broad scope of uh, fascist political movements and parties and uh, organizations uh, that that were operative in the United States during that time. Uh, and of course, and this is one thing that I'm somewhat critical of uh, the, that meeting for. Um, and hoping that Biden addresses it, uh, the the role of racism uh, in in this. I mean, Jim Crow is a semi-fascist regime, and uh, you know it's not like these are foreign to the United States in the first place. In the first instance, as um, as Sarah Churchwell and others have ably demonstrated, there was a large number. There were there were a number of fascist movements. Uh, in the United States between World War One and World War Two, and secondly, we don't need to look abroad for semi-fascism. Uh, the Jim Crow regime was semi-fascist. So maybe he will bring up the name of Donald Trump, but do you think that Donald Trump is is the magnet of fascism? I mean, is he, or has he simply picked up this kind of thread in our political DNA and and it seems to have metastasized around him. I mean, he he admires Putin, who is a fascist, and there's many similarities between Putin's state and Trump, of course, is a, a wannabe Putin in the alliance with nationalists and with Christian nationalists, uh, very similar, both in Putin's Russia and, and in, in the Republican coalition. So is Trump the leader of American fascism, or is he just somebody that's arrived at the right time? Trump picked it up from our political DNA. I think you you formulated that in a precise manner that I completely and heartily endorse. Uh, and if Trump goes by the wayside, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida is ready to pick up the torch. We have a number of politicians right now who are willing to demonize uh, de- demonize Democrats as an existential threat to tradition to traditional values, claim that, as as the Nazis did, that the uh, major media organizations and the universities and the cultural institutions are dominant, dominated by communists uh, out, to, out to poison the minds of your children. Uh, there's a number, uh, and, and we have a longstanding uh, attack on voting rights from our, uh, from our Jim Crow past. Uh, we just have those those structures are right beneath the surface. Uh, uh, Governor DeSantis 
uh, has announced the arrest of 20 people for, uh, for, for illegally voting. Of course, Florida's felon disenfranchisement disenfranchises a million Florida voters. This is, this is a, an epicycle, the, the sort of the follow-up to Jim Crow, a way of, you know, you mass police black minority popular black and minority populations, give them arrest records so they and then pass laws saying that people with those arrest records can't vote. So, you know, there's no problem of voter fraud in the United States. It's not a problem. It's, you know, there's maybe a dozen cases of same day in-person voter fraud uh, in uh, in the United States in the last 20 years or so. Uh, so it's entirely fictional. And the Republican Party as a party, uh, not just Donald Trump, has completely embraced an entire, completely detached, fictional, indeed psychotic uh, conspiracy theory to uh, to buttress its desire to suppress the vote. Uh, and that is a fascist tactic from our own past. And again, I'm speaking with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Uraski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. So in terms of Ron DeSantis, he's destroyed the education system in Florida, which was never, not exactly robust to begin with. Teachers have, have either resigned or been fired because of the strictures on them, which are all, you know, book-burning kind of strictures. And apparently now, to fill the gap, they're recruiting teachers from uh, Christian fundamentalist churches and the, the military. So if you're going to dumb down people even further, is that a part of the plan here? I mean, every time you see DeSantis, he's flanked by these burly policemen. I mean, he he really does have more than a whiff of fascism about him. But what's the connection, uh, Jason Stanley, between the lure of fascism in the United States and the lack of education? Because it's hard to believe, you talk about psychotic beliefs, it's hard to believe that so many people in this country believe that Trump won the election. Right. It's it's uh, it's it's honestly it might not be that uh, that uh, the lack of education is responsible for people adopting the adopting that belief or claiming that Trump lost the election uh, uh, one really won the election and it was stolen from him. Uh, it might just be a uh, heightening of uh, of of connections of loyalty the fascist sense that the only legitimate victor is the leader, uh, that there is no legitimate opposition party. Uh, so that's very much in the air. Uh, but when you attack education, the function of the attack on education um, is it's very specific. It's an attack on history. Uh, you're not allowed to teach about the fact that uh, white supremacy involved Disen mass disenfranchisement of black voters. Um, so when you're not allowed to teach that, people won't learn about it, and then they won't recognize that the same thing is being done again. So uh, what they're banning is any teaching that connects uh, the wealthy and powerful interests and white supremacy uh, to voter suppression. Uh, and they're banning that because they're they want to repeat it. Um, Furthermore, they're banning any discussion of systematic system of structural racism, 
so that when there's black political protest, people will have no idea why the protest thing is happening. happening. And so they will re react by taking it to be an attack on law and order um, rather than a social justice movement, a movement for equality. Uh, and then they will uh, further back um, fascist and authoritarian leaders. So the only preview we have of what Biden is going to be saying tonight in his address to the nation comes from his press secretary, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, who said the way Biden sees it is that the MAGA Republicans are the most energized part of the Republican Party. This is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, to our rights. They just don't respect the rule of law. Well, you could also say they don't believe in democracy. But what's your sense of whether there will be enough appeal to independents and to Republicans? Uh, and I don't know how small the numbers are of those Republicans like Liz Cheney. But is there a coalition that Biden can put together of the left, the center left, and the center right? Uh, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I'm no, that's not, that falls outside my expertise, this kind of sort of um, guessing about political strategies and their successes. Uh, I'm more of an analyst. Uh, I can say that, um, that with a figure like Liz Cheney, um, she is for all of the uh, anti-CRT laws and the attacks on education systems and the suppression of voting. Uh, it's just that she's against Donald Trump's uh, misadventures and criminal and apparent criminal behavior. So, uh, so I'm not sure how much she'd be an ally uh, when we take the target to be as it should be uh, the anti-democratic wing inside the Republican Party. Um, it, this is a long-standing thing. It, it, you know, the Mississippi. Thirty-eight percent of Mississippi's residents are African American. How much power do black voters have in Mississippi? Hardly any. Um, so this is they don't this, have any drinking water at the moment in Jackson. The capital, the capital doesn't have any drinking water because of the state's long-time um, uh, uh, strangulation of state and federal funds to Jackson to solve the problem. So. So we have long-standing structural problems. This is exactly what the attack on the education system is supposed to make us ignorant of, these long-standing structural problems. You're not allowed to teach about them. Uh, and, and these we need to tackle. I agree with you that uh, there can be a coalition uh, around defending proce uh, procedural democracy, the procedural aspect of democracy. And that must centrally include Republicans like Adam Kissinger and uh, Liz Cheney. So so that needs to be front and center first and foremost. Uh, but that must not just include Trump. It must include uh, a principle uh, whereby American voters get to elect uh, their representatives. So do you think then that Biden should enunciate a kind of campaign theme that the Democrats should run on, which I think is is necessary, and that is that Americans simply have to vote, and this may well be in November, and this may well be the last chance they have to vote. It's so clear that what the Republicans are up to, and you're right to say that even Liz Cheney doesn't condemn the voter suppression underway. It's absolutely a Republican plan, 
and they're shameless about it. And these crackpots that are in the key swing states that are now running for secretaries of state and attorney generals and governors, uh, at least 10 states, seven of which are, several of which are key swing states, the writing is on the wall. If enough Democrats and independents and disaffected Republicans don't vote in November, this could be the beginning of the end of American democracy. It's as clear as day. No, I disagree with you. It wouldn't be the beginning of the end. It would be the middle or towards the end of the end. We've had a long, we've, uh, it's, you know, long past time to run a campaign of this sort. It's long past time to run, uh, to, to ring alarm bells about the dangers facing American democracy, which was already partial and, uh, and partial to begin with. Um, so what we're talking about is a substantial rollback, uh, and a future one party state. Um, you know, if, if, the Republicans dominate in the in the midterm elections. So, given the the role of the historians in apparently stimulating Biden into taking this new rhetorical stance that he's had and using the F word or the semi F word, do you think that it really does resonate with Americans? I mean, if we don't, as we talked earlier, you pointed out that DeSantis is also about denying history, not just burning books, but sanitizing history. And your work is so much about Germany in the Nazi period, which you know, members of your family endured the Holocaust. So do you think that it resonates? Do you think there's enough people out there to understand that fascism's a bad thing, that Nazis are bad? Uh, well, we have to look internally because the Nazis drew on America for inspiration. The Nuremberg laws are based on our Jim Crow laws. So we have to ask ourselves, is it time to look at our own semi-fascist past? Uh, are there enough Americans willing to condemn our, our own fascist ideology? After all, the second Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s mirrored Nazi ideology. They thought that labor unions were set up by Jews uh, as a means to force racial and gender equality on white men, on white male Americans. So this this idea that labor union, that the labor movement is a method to push racial equality, which, you know, hopefully it is. <laughs> but uh, the, I mean, it is. It has been that. Uh, but that this was conceived of as, a, as an existential threat to what America was in the eyes of the KKK, which was a, a white dominated society. Uh, and this was all funded by and and uh, th these extremist movements through the decades have been funded by uh, increasingly, especially recently, uh, billionaire and corporate interests that would profit from uh, the releasing of uh, or, or see themselves as profiting from the releasing of the, of the restrictions of democracy. So we have to look at a similar grouping in our own past. What pushed the Nazis over the top? was they promised the corporations they would smash the labor unions. They told the German people that their suffering was uh, not the fault of, of uh, international business and international finance, but rather minorities seeking equality. Uh, and that's the situation we face, and we faced it before and faced it down before. So uh, I, I hope we do it again. But it's not the first it's not the first time and it won't be the last, but it's a particularly bad time right now. Well, Jason Stanley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. 
Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jason Stanley, who's the Jacob Uraski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring further whether fascism is in the political DNA of the country or that it has been brought into the political mainstream by Trump who clearly admires authoritarians and would like to have the power of murderous dictators like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976-1992. And he has an article at NBC News, why Mikhail Gorbachev is a cautionary tale for the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Back. Always good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And explain, if you will, why you think Gorbachev is a cautionary tale in the sense that you could argue, of course, that Putin is a cautionary tale because Putin's, you know, wannabe clone here in the United States, Donald Trump. We had him for four years. And if he comes back, then... <laughs> I think all bets are off. So, well, Putin may, Putin may be a cautionary tale as well, but Gorbachev is a different kind of cautionary tale. And the way I would say this, Gorbachev was the general secretary of the Communist Party from 1985 to 1991. That was a six year, you know, six years. And if you put two years on either side of that, in 1983, the thought that the Soviet Union would collapse was unimaginable. If I had said that to you, a party in 1983, when I was in high school, you would have said, Lincoln, you've been running around uh, San Francisco smoking too much pot again. By, by 1993, it was not just that the Soviet Union had collapsed. It was that it was understood to have been inevitable. And the point here is that the, di the distance between the unimaginable to the inevitable is the blink of an eye. Ten years in the bigger picture of history is nothing. And we are at a point in the United States where are all these signs pointing to the collapse of American democracy, potentially even the collapse of the American state. And too much of our political leadership, our punditry, our political establishment is in denial about that, about just how grave the crisis is. So that's why Gorbachev and the speed with which the Soviet Union collapsed is an important cautionary tale for the U.S. now. Well, there's a possibility that President Biden will discuss this. I mean, we go to air at the very moment, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern tonight, when Biden is, makes his speech to the nation. But I'm told that he's going to talk about the portent of American fascism. I actually heard something really interesting yesterday, Lincoln, on NPR, an interview with the former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who you know, represented the the conservative government, they're called the liberals, but they're conservative, they're more like the American Republicans. And he said the most dangerous person in America is Rupert Murdoch. And he went on to explain how Murdoch 
is dividing this country, turning Americans against each other, and that there is a, even the portent of civil war. And he also went on to say that Putin is not America's greatest threat, nor is Xi Jinping, but it is the, the possibility of uh, this, this division being exacerbated to the point of a civil war, which is what Fox News' drumbeat is all about. So that was an unusual source for that kind of warning, but I thought it was quite, quite powerful, in fact, what he said. Well, there's no question that the bigger sources of the bigger threats in the United States are domestic instability, domestic fascism, and ultimately climate change. But we're, we're not really here talking about, about that today. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin cannot really do anything to the United States if we are a functioning state. And clearly, Fox News has played a huge role in enabling the movement around Donald Trump, which has done uh, so much damage, so much damage to democracy in the United States. So I, I would... I would agree with that assessment. I would I'm a little bit I want to just push a little bit on this notion of civil war because, you know, Americans, when you hear, they hear the phrase civil war, we think back to the 1860s. And many Americans don't know that what civil war looks like in the 20th and 21st century. It's not, you know, these states on one side, these 11 states breaking away from the, the Confederacy and, and, and armies in uniform with its generals all studied together at West Point. It's a very different thing. And the question I would raise in response to that comment is not are we on the cusp of civil war? But how will we know when we're in the Civil War? It's possible that we're already a few years in and that 10 years from now, we'll look back not on some event that hasn't happened yet, but as the January 6th insurrection, as the beginning of the Civil War, as Trump's election, as the beginning of the Civil War, as something else. We may be further down this road than we realize. And again, I'm speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants in Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at NBC News, Why Mikhail Gorbachev is a Cautionary Tale for the United States. Well, in November of 2013, when Trump was in Moscow for the Miss Universe contest, he expected to meet with Putin, and Putin had a last-minute diplomatic engagement. So as a compromise, uh, he sent over some of his close oligarchs, and they met with Trump in the Nobu Hotel in Moscow, and they basically gave him his marching orders about running for president. But in order to begin his run, they encouraged his Bertha movement, which would allow Americans to be racist again. In other words, you can come out from under a rock and express your hateful opinions. And that is clearly what happened. And that was all a part of the broader plan to divide America and turn Americans against each other. And that has been Trump's role. And Putin had it covered either way in 2016. Had Trump lost, which most people expected, including Putin, Trump would have gone around the country for the four years leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up, and diminishing Hillary Clinton's ability to govern. So the extent to which there's a comparison there, I'm, I was saying earlier that Trump is a, a wannabe Putin, and he admires Putin's brutality, but the truth of the matter is that the only person who's winning in terms of the division in this country is Putin. Well, Putin and, and Xi Jinping. Um, you know, I agree with your assessment. I would also point out that the American people don't need Vladimir Putin to be divided, right? We're, we're kind of always divided already, and it just that's just a scab that needs to be picked. 
And, and that's what Donald Trump has done in his in his seven years uh, as, as a national political figure. That's where this has led. And, and the question I keep coming back to is, how do we roll this? How do we turn this back? How do we get back from this? How do we walk this back? What is the scenario? Rather than ask the question, you know, 10 years from now, will there be a civil war? Ask the question 10 years from now, how could the United States be a functioning unified country again? Have we have how do we make that toast back into bread? And and I don't see the answer to that. Well, as long as we have Donald Trump, it's not going to happen because he's the main agent. That's the reason I keep getting back to him. And, and, and no, It's no longer just Donald Trump. That's the problem. If Donald Trump decided tomorrow, and this isn't going to happen, but let's just decide that Don, let's just imagine that Donald Trump decided what he wanted was a life of quiet reflection and joined a monastery and took a vow of silence that included, you know, staying off of social media. Again, we're in the realm of fantasy now. But the movement he has created would go on. It might fall into some disunity. There might be people, you know, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron DeSantis vying for power, Don Trump Jr. But the the authoritarian movement, the MAGA cult isn't going away. And that's what makes this so frightening. Trump is at the center of it, but he's no longer essential. The Republican Party has been captured by this. Well, there again is another comparison with Putin's Russia, because it's a, the Republican Party is dominated by Christian nationalists, which is the case of in Russia with the Orthodox Church and the nationalist movement. I mean, it's pretty clear that there are real similarities. And I mean, what do you think drives this movement, and particularly the anti-intellectual nature of of, of the MAGA GOP because of this election denial. The idea that this one man couldn't accept defeat metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst 80% of Republicans. They believe in a lie. How did that happen? I mean, is this a, because of the collapse of our education? I don't, I don't understand how there's this a lot, could be... There's fun. a lot of components to that question. I would start by saying that the comparison you make to Putin is very apt, but the right-wing ultra-nationalist movement that underlies Putin's popularity, Trump's popularity, is, is global now, right? It's the Brexit movement in the, in the United Kingdom. It's Modi in India. It is Xi, even though it's not even a semi-democratic system in China, but it's the same appeal, right? An anti-intellectual, ultra-nationalist message aimed at older, less affluent voters or less affluent citizens. And that's, that's, where, that's the bedrock of Trump's support as well. You know, it, it is very hard to explain the rise of Trump's popularity and the rise of the faith in Trump and the almost cult-like adherence to him. I mean, I, I was just in driving through rural Pennsylvania earlier this week. I had about a 300-mile drive through rural Pennsylvania on my way to, to and from Ohio. And the Trump signs you see for a candidate who lost wasn't even that close, frankly, and still out there. It is still it is a it is a way of signifying an identity that is. We are the true Americans. We don't like the changes that are happening in this country. We are the ones who have the real rights here, and we'll do anything to stop it. It's a deeply undemocratic message, and it has kind of come to be centered around, of all people, this very rich, deeply lazy, physically cowardly old older man, Donald Trump, who's a, who's a very wealthy man. And it's, it's very unlikely, but that's, that's what's happened here. And the, the role of Fox News, the ongoing message going back decades, don't trust the government, don't trust the experts. So if you don't trust the government, don't trust the experts, then you're not going to believe them when they say, hey, you know, maybe getting a vaccine to that COVID is a good idea. Or 
the election was won by the guy who, you know, got more votes. The, the roots of that go back decades. And I would say among, you know, he's overlooked a lot now and we should, it's important to talk about him now, but especially as we begun by talking about Gorbachev, is, you know, Ronald Reagan's message, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, is the most dangerous phrase in the English language. It was a very clever soundbite, but it was deeply, deeply dangerous, way beyond what we realized at the time. And we are now reaping the fruits of that. Well, that's a part of a, a plutocratic project to detach people from their political interests. I mean, in a social democracy, you vote for politicians who are stewards of your tax money so that you get government services in return. The plutocracy has always encouraged people with extraneous culture wars issues like prayer in school and abortion and guns, etc. So that seems to be a part of a continuum. Absolutely. And these issues are very important to voters. And we can't we can't underestimate that. There's a tendency to to see these voters as not smart and being fooled. And maybe they are. But I mean, I'm sure some aren't very smart, but many are. They the sense of white grievance is the central theme of the Republican Party. This is no longer a party that central message is let free enterprise rule. Let's have low taxes and give people an opportunity or, you know, we don't like welfare. The central message of today's Republican Party is that if you are a white, straight Christian American, the country and the world is being unfair to you and is discriminating against you. And I will stand up for you. Now, that is an absurd message for anyone who's even taken a peripheral a, 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 a brief glance at the United States, because obviously those are the people who who have the most money, the most influence, the most power. But that message of be aggrieved, the they is out to get you, the they is out to change America, to take what's yours away from you. And they've been hitting on that message pretty hard for decades now. And this is the fruit of that. But Lincoln Mitchell, when you say that the civil war may not happen soon, but could happen within 10 years. No, what I'm saying is it could be already happening. Oh, that's true. You said it's already happening. Well, it could be already happening. there could be a trigger then or a spark that could explode it in the sense that I'm told that the die is cast at the Department of Justice, that the trains left the station. There's no way that Merrick Garland, who really doesn't want this uh, situation, and he's, it's the last thing he wants to be dealing with, but he has to deal with it. And there is no f room now to compromise between the law and politics, and that they just have to go ahead and indict Trump because the case is overwhelming. And there may actually be more hidden classified documents at Bedminster, according to John Bolton, uh, who I think has somebody that probably knows. So Lindsey Graham is out there saying that if they indict Trump, there'll be civil war. Now, I don't know whether whether he believes that or whether he's being blackmailed by Trump, but the truth of the matter is it's out there. Do you think that, that what I see as an inevitable indictment of Trump will spark civil unrest? The short answer to that is, is yes. The longer answer is it really depends on how we define, define terms. Was January 6th civil unrest? I would say so. Are threats to judges, efforts to disrupt school board meetings, efforts to kidnap governors of states, civil unrest? I would say so. So maybe the better language to use here is that an indictment of Trump will accelerate or expand civil unrest. I, you know, this isn't a Fort Sumter moment where there's going to be one incident where we can say, you know, the civil war started on, you know, uh, December 2nd of 2023 or something like that. I think this is much more we're creeping into it. I mean, I hope not, but this is my sense. And the historians will, will sort out and argue about when it really started. And that goes back to my, my initial point here. 
the historians may look at this and said it was always inevitable. And we're looking at it. So many in America are still saying it's unimaginable. And when you and, and that will that is preventing us from doing what it takes to stop this from happening. And I don't quite know what it's going to take to stop from happening, but I know that ignoring the threat to, of civil unrest, ignoring the threat of civil war, ignoring the threat represented by the movement, the MAGA cult that has emerged around Donald Trump and is very strong, is not a good idea. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, you mentioned the historians. Apparently, I spoke to one of the historians who met recently at the White House with Biden, although they did it by video because he, he was had COVID. But apparently, they played him a video of the 1938 speech that FDR made against American fascism, and Biden was astounded. He didn't know anything about that, nor did he know about the Wall Street coup attempt against FDR. And apparently John Meacham, one of the historians, has a lot to do with tonight's speech. So obviously we're, as I mentioned, we're, our program starts when the speech is made, so I don't know what he's going to say, but the expectation is that he is going to talk about fascism and in an historical context. At least he's being spurred on by his recent understanding of, of history. And unfortunately, it's all pretty real. So is there... Has there always been a kind of sort of fascist sympathy in this country? Certainly, it always has existed amongst the plutocracy. Well, you know, American democracy has always been more tenuous than, than people realize. So, so in, in a very meaningful way, this country was not a democracy until the Voting Rights Act. It was a racial democracy where one group really was largely uh, excluded from politics. There has always been a... a an openness to fascist ideas, right? But the question is, is that 5% of the population, 20%? One of the things the Republican Party did, going back, you know, at least to, to the Nixon era, is get the votes from the dangerous extreme far right, but also keep them at bay. And Trump did, got the votes and then brought them in and had them run the show. And that's been, that, that's the damage that, that has been done there. The, the, the problem, the, the, what will happen tonight when Biden, if Biden makes this speech, as you say, is that a third of the country, is that the Republicans will immediately begin messaging, look how divisive Biden was being. He was supposed to unify us, and now he's calling us fascist. This is, this is the, the great Republican tactic. of We see this around the, uh, the reaction to Donald Trump's uh, home in Mar-a-Lago being searched by the FBI, where essentially what they're saying is, if this can happen to you, it can happen to anybody. And of course, it is true. If you commit a felony, if you uh, violate national security protocols and, and laws, yes, the FBI could in fact search your house. And it's a similar thing here, right? If you act as a fascist party for five or six years, you will be called out on it. But the Republican argument here is that, look, they're the bad ones. They're calling us fascists. What a terrible thing to call us, even though in fact they are. And about a third of the country will believe that. And when that's the situation, it's very hard to restabilize a country, to reunify a country, to rebuild a democracy. Well, I'm, I wish you had an answer. I wish I had an answer, and um, I wish there was an answer because uh, the stakes are so high. That's um, right. But I guess the truth of the matter is that this will be decided in, Amer in, in November, will it not, whether we become, we become a fascist country or not? I don't think it's that simple. Uh, what would happen in November, what can happen in November and again in November 24, 24 what happened again last day, last election is that we can stop. We can hold it off for a little while longer. But the movement is strong. And I would just raise this question. If we all saw what happened January 6, 2021, 
Let's fast forward to January 6th or whatever the equivalent date is in 2025. This time, the Republicans say they narrowly lose again. Trump runs and narrowly loses or not so narrowly loses. We'll have had more time to organize. The speaker's gavel will likely be in the hand of, of Kevin McCarthy, a man not burdened by any shred of integrity or, or for that matter, intellect. And, and it will be on the, the responsibility of a Democratic president to call out the troops to put down a rally, violent demonstration on the part of, of, of a movement that is loyal to a fascist leader. That is a very, very toxic moment, a very dangerous moment for the United States. And I don't see how we avoid being there in early January of 2025. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar at the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at NBC News, Why Mikhail Gorbachev is a Cautionary Tale for the United States. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at how the city of Jackson, Mississippi is without drinking water and infrastructure is breaking down across the country from underinvestment compounded by the ravages of extreme climate caused by global warming. Freestyle, lyrics of fury. My third eye make me shine like jury. You're just a rental rapper, your rhymes are minimate. I'll be here when it fade and watch it flip like a renegade. I can't wait to break and eliminate on every trade of a snake, so stay awake and follow and follow because the tempo's a trail, the stage is a cave, the mic is a third rail. I'm Rock Kim. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters. This is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mikhail Chester, who's a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment and the director of the Metis Center for Infrastructure and Sustainable Engineering at Arizona State University. He's the co-author of The Rightful Place of Science, Infrastructure, and the Anthropocene. And he has an article at Scientific American, The Slow Bake of Our Infrastructure. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mikhail Chester. Thanks, Ian. Happy to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we, of course, are witnessing the second disaster of a city in the United States running out of drinking water after what happened recently with the floods in Kentucky and now in Jackson, Mississippi, a largely African-American town of about 150,000 people there without water. So I take it that there are many, many challenges in terms of replacing or upgrading infrastructure here in the United States, and the challenges are also exacerbated or compounded by global warming and, and the weather events that it's creating and more and more severe ones at that. So where do we start? I mean, we have ambitious plans to electrify the entire transportation economy. And here in California, for example, the state of California has recently set a target of getting rid of all gasoline burning cars by 2035, which will mean we'll need enormous amounts of electricity getting rid of uh, gas stoves and getting all the gas infrastructure into homes, et cetera, and into buildings. So the challenges are extraordinary, and this is the work that you do. So is there a sense of priorities here, or is it are we just sort of you know doing whack-a-mole? I think there are a sense of priorities at certain scales of the problem, but uh, I think those quickly run up against the realities of legacy infrastructure 
that often is in disrepair, underfunded. There's certainly uh, equity issues in terms of uh, how the infrastructure is funded. Um, you know, there's uh, challenges in terms of how the legacy infrastructure was designed and what it was designed for. And of course, all of that comes to a head with the reality of, uh, as you're pointing out, not just climate change, which, you know, has uh, pushed many of our infrastructure systems to their extremes when we need them the most, but also these desires and goals and, and uh, sort of future um, hopes of our infrastructure doing something different for us. So, but looming over all of this is climate change, right? We're in a race, are we not? We are in a race. Climate change is one of several destabilizing conditions that define the environments that our infrastructure need to function in. So if we recognize that our infrastructures today, you know, power, water, you know, roads um, and so on, were designed often based on uh, legacy goals, legacy technologies. And, you know, those environments, whether it be the natural environment that they were designed for or the conditions that they were designed for or even what we want those infrastructures to do. You know, what do we want them to power electric vehicles in, in a very different way than we've been powering ourselves in the past, right? All of that is sort of coming together. And, and climate change is one of those destabilizing forces. And of course, it's a major one as we see play out. Often we are seeing infrastructure fail uh, right when we need them to function the most, right? Whether it's an extreme heat event or a flooding event, that's really when we need our infrastructure to protect us. And often, you know, that's when they are failing because, of course, we're pushing them uh, to their extremes at that point. So the way that I often like to think about it is in many ways, the environments are changing faster than we can change our infrastructure in response. Uh, there's a decoupling between what we need our infrastructures to do and how quickly those environments are changing around them. Well, the state of Texas, of course, is an example in as much as now they're suffering from record heat, which is also the case here in California. And I imagine you're in Arizona. What, what's the temperature where you are today? I think it's about 110 Fahrenheit. Wow. So they're baking in Texas, and that's causing the ground to shift and pipes to crack. And then if you go back just to the last winter they had in February of 2021, the freeze that happened there caused thousands of pipes to burst and um, caused tremendous problems for citizens of Texas. So that's just one example on top of the current one, which, which is happening down in Mississippi. It's important to recognize that the infrastructures around us all have some assumptions baked into them about the environments that they're going to have to operate in, often at the extremes. So any engineer in the field has done these sorts of designs, uh, you know, dozens, hundreds of times. And, you know, at times they're codified, the requirements for a particular intensity or frequency of event. Uh, sometimes there are uh, professional guidelines on how you should design something. But it's critical to recognize that infrastructure and the environment are intimately connected in design. So everything around us, and there is a lot of infrastructure around us, has um, some sort of normative design baked into it, whether that has to do with heat uh, or precipitation or, or flooding 
um, or you know, wind even. And you know, now we run up against climate change where those design assumptions, which are hard-coded into infrastructure, into our very rigid infrastructure, are being challenged um, more and more frequently and more and more intensely. So one of the problems, it seems, in Jackson, Mississippi, is that the state government has been taking the money uh, that's been coming from the federal government, but it's not necessarily reaching this largely African-American town. The White House press secretary said on Wednesday that the state of Mississippi received $75 million to upgrade drinking water systems, uh, with an additional $429 million coming available over the next five years. But the money is in the hands of the state legislature, not the Jackson officials. And a lot of these state legislatures have representatives who, you know, many of them don't even believe in government itself. And in the state of Mississippi, their focus seems to be on banning abortion. Not, that seems to be their top priority. So how do you deal with the political problem here? Well, I think too often infrastructure are uh, treated as a political football and the seriousness with which you know we recognize the critical services that are delivered is just not there. I think we take for granted in many ways that the infrastructures around us that you know were fairly new uh, in the last century, but now are much older and are in a much more serious condition, you know, are, are underfunded for today, let alone, you know, some climate future that's more extreme, uh, you know, 10, 20, 50 years out. You know, it's a, it's a crisis. And uh, there have been efforts to, um, you know, try to deal with some of the rehabilitation challenges around infrastructure. Um, but the sheer scale of infrastructure, uh, you know, across the United States, all of these systems, much of which, you know, is is sort of legacy infrastructure that is now uh, mature and, um, you know, is past its its sort of useful life. You know, all, all of this is sort of coming to a head where, you know, we're seeing kind of an erosion of the ability of our infrastructure to provide those critical services. And unfortunately, you know, the sort of justice and equity outcomes that we're starting to see are disproportionately often affecting, um, you know, those communities that are particularly vulnerable and per don't necessarily have a strong voice in how those infrastructure are rehabilitated. But isn't there also a problem with the change in technology itself and that infrastructure has been built around technologies uh, that are quickly becoming outdated? Yeah, in many ways, the infrastructures that we have um, are built on uh, sort of core backbone technologies that are literally 100 years old. So, you know, Thomas Edison and, um, you know, Pearl Street Station uh, on, on Wall Street in Manhattan, um, you know, at the, the turn of the century, you know, sort of marking the beginning of the modern power system. The water systems that we have, you know, largely function the way that they were designed initially in Hamburg, Germany in the uh, uh, 1800s. You know, our roadway networks still tend to emphasize, you know, an automobility paradigm of the 50s. And there have absolutely been efforts to modernize these systems by layering new technologies on top of them. Um, but that layering of the of these new technologies on top of older technologies over and over and over again, in many ways, creates a, 
a complexity of these systems that make them difficult to manage. And now, you know, as we look to the future, uh, you know, often marked by, you know, quite radical shifts in, you know, physical to virtual environments or, you know, very different services or consuming services in different ways with very different technologies. There's challenging questions of, of how you take these legacy systems and modernize them for the, uh, for the future. Uh, you know, how do we integrate the old with the new? And is there a problem with almost all infrastructure? And, you know, we're going back, as you mentioned, to the, the days when the Brooklyn Bridge was built and the, the Hamburg infrastructure that you mentioned from the 19th century. So is there also a problem with the convention has always been the centralized power or water or whatever infrastructure systems then radiate out with transmission lines or pipes. So is there a way to sort of reinvent infrastructure on more community basis, in other words, to decentralize infrastructure? Yes. So centralized systems uh, have made a lot of sense and continue to make a lot of sense in some ways. Um, in addition to our infrastructure emphasizing a centralized model where there's sort of a few producers of the service, a power plant, a water treatment plant, and many, many, many consumers of those few uh, producers. Um, you know, what uh, the centralized model makes the most sense in is sort of periods of stability. Um, you know, when, when you can sort of harden an asset around sort of a normative set of conditions that you don't think will change all that much. Decentralized technologies. So we might think about um, uh, rooftop harvesting of water, uh, gray water systems. We might think about uh, microgrids for power, or even rooftop solar. Um, you know, these technologies uh, are maturing or have matured, and in many ways represent an ability to deal with unstable environments a lot better. So that's not to say that we wanna completely pivot to decentralized technologies. More so my view is that we need, the, uh, we need hybrid models where we have our centralized systems that provide a base reliability of service. And on top of that, we layer decentralized technologies that can help us deal with the increasing ups and downs that we might experience with climate extreme events or rapid changes in demand or even new technologies that need to be swapped out very quickly. But in terms of of how this gets done financially, you have both private and public interests at play. And if you take the example of broadband, which is a, a very important new infrastructure, here we are in the country that invented the internet and yet we have some of the crappiest broadband in the world that's expensive, and I think the average speed is something like 19 megabytes per second across the country, where in Asia and other, other European countries it's one gigabyte. And this is a really important piece of infrastructure for education and, and for entertainment, etc. And it's very frustrating that you don't, you don't have any choice in this and have to spend a lot of money for crappy service. So how do we get around this? We're talking largely about in, in infrastructure for, for roads and bridges and, and water treatment, etc. But let's take the example of uh, broadband. Is there a way to get around this kind of political 
uh, mess that uh, we have with broadband, the lack of competition? Well, I generally think about when, you know, I think about a lack of competition in infrastructure is not simply that we need more competition. It's that we need innovation more broadly. Uh, and that innovation, I do think, can come from within the sector, you know, even if you don't have, you know, two water utilities competing for each other, which economically doesn't make any sense. So, um, you know, when we look at how you innovate in infrastructure, often that we, what we find is that the institutions that manage and govern our infrastructures today are not geared up for innovation in any sort of uh, meaningful way. Again, they, they have some level of complacency because they've been able to function in relatively stable environments. This sort of idea that, hey, if I'm a water treatment provider, people are gonna be asking for water pretty much the same way 30 years from now as they are today. So I don't see a real need to innovate in how I'm delivering water. So I'm generalizing in many ways, but we can kind of think about how that might be fundamentally different in terms of a thought, press, thought process than a broadband provider where technologies and demands for those services are changing remarkably radically, right, at, over the past 50 years. And I would argue that's why you've seen so much innovation in the broadband industry. So when it comes to infrastructure, there are ways internally within an organization, even without significant competition, to innovate. And uh, you know, we see examples of this like Skunk Works uh, models, where uh, a, a government entity may create a division that's semi-autonomous, that's able to do things like future scanning, looking out and saying, what are the really weak signals that we're seeing about how things might change in the future that might undermine our ability to deliver this service reliably? And how do we respond to that? And that semi-autonomous division might be given the appropriate resources, might be given diverse knowledge, right? So if we're thinking about a, a problem like climate change, there's no single bin of knowledge that that falls into cleanly. You need climatologists, you need infrastructure experts, you need governance experts, you need finance experts, right? So you need to allow space for those people to come together in the agency. You also need to give them space to actually make decisions that strategically affect the infrastructure agency. So often what we'll find is that the infrastructure agency is built on a very vertical power dynamic where there's a, you know, a lead person or lead people at the top and they make a strategic decision about what's going on and push down you know, the, the mandates of what the organization should do all the way to the bottom. That may seem normal, but in many industries it's not. There are ways to more horizontally govern an organization that gives it better capabilities to sense disruption and make decisions and be more agile and flexible to respond to those, those disruptions uh, preemptively. Well, Mikhail Chester, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Mikhail Chester, who is a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment and the director of the Metis Center for Infrastructure and Sustainable Engineering at Arizona State University. He's the co-author of The Rightful Place of Science, Infrastructure and the Anthropocene. And he has an article at Scientific American, The Slow Bake of Our Infrastructure. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.